So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. Here's what we've got coming up for you today. You are going to crush me with your bare feet and I want you to say these words and I want you to do these angles and show me these things. Making porn to make ends meet. The PhD student whose kinky experiments turned into a career standing up for sex workers. Plus... If you think of a a normal vaginal canal a little bit like a deflated balloon... Alex Fox advises a listener in an open relationship and Ollie Peart breaks up the dance floor. That's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, and hello to Josh in Devon, who says, uh, Ollie, I just want to write and thank you for your discussion in the Zeitgeist last month about ChatGPT. Yeah, we've had quite a lot of feedback about ChatGPT. Uh, He says, I'm a paramedic working for an air ambulance charity, and we've been looking at how we can speed up our checks process to get online and available at the start of a shift. Part of this is changing the audit and record system that we use, one option being having an app designed for us. Now, we were quoted £10,000 a year for this, but after your discussions... (laughs) Yes, really... Uh, I thought I'd see if ChatGPT could help, as I have absolutely no coding experience or understanding. And amazingly, the AI converted exactly what I wanted into many, many macro codes. I'm not going to pretend I know what that means. Um, And I've now created, as he says, a custom interface to achieve what we needed. It's incredible how I could type exactly as if I was speaking to a person what I needed And it's a really impressive, if not slightly scary, view into the future. If our management team adopts this, it will have saved a lot of time and money in a time where the cost of living is affecting charities like ours incredibly. And every penny saved is important. So thank you for the conversation that prompted the idea. We'll be buying you all a round of beers very soon. Wow. Uh... That is so amazing. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that me and Ollie Peart have any particular role in this, really. I mean, I know you happen to hear us talking about it on the podcast, but it's not like not like we invented ChatGPT. <laughs> we just talked about it. But it really shows, doesn't it, how once people get to grips with what it's available to do, they really will push it into areas that, you know, even the developers didn't realise were going to be possible. And the speed that this technology adoption moves when we when we get onto a trend that really does become a big trend. You know, a couple of months ago, I hadn't heard of it. Last month, I was learning about it. Since last month, I too have been using ChatGPT more and more. I've been using the um, uh, the version of Bing that's got it integrated on it. And once you've used uh, a search engine that can talk to you, it's... Um, I now prefer it to the online conversations I have with many of my real friends. 
Um, anyway, uh, Josh, you do a much more important job than we do, so you really didn't need to send us any money. But I, I do appreciate the fifteen pounds that landed in our PayPal account shortly after that email. Um, some other beer money donors this month: uh, Paul Leader, Sharon Bushby, and Joanna in Cardiff. Mwah! Thank you. And thank you as well to Simon, who's one of our very earliest Beer Money supporters on the show. He's been donating regularly since December 2015. Uh, He says, uh, Ollie, reflecting on your comment last month that some donors have cancelled their support for The Modern Man in the new year, I've just upped my contribution, as you are consistently the best podcast out of many that I listen to. Um, Simon, that is so lovely. Thank you. And yes, just to reiterate, I, I get it. Uh, times are tough and people are tightening the purse strings and all of that but we're still here we're an independent show we do need your money to continue so as always if you can afford to buy us a beer do modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click beer money but if you're already an existent extant uh, beer money contributor um, you know the price of beer has probably gone up since you filled out that form all those years ago Um, and you know maybe you can afford to give more than you currently were Um, It's not just Simon who's upped his donation. Also, Charlie Woodstock has upped his uh, to £10 per month. Stephen Bedford is now doing £15 a month. Thank you, Stephen. That is legendary. Uh, Monmanwith2ends.co.uk and click Beer Money. Thank you, everybody. You are helping us keep the lights on. Right. Uh, Coming up this month, you will learn how to make a giantess fetish video. Uh, You will learn which sports only survived one Olympic Games and you'll learn what Susie Dent doesn't like in her oral cavity. Let's go. Time for the zeitgeist, your trends tested with a man who is sitting next to me on a bed in a three-star hotel in London, Ollie Peart. Hey, this is nice, isn't it? It is nice. I'm starting it that way because uh, I'm very excited. You're actually sharing a bed with an (laughs) award-winning... Podcast producer. I am. I'm not going to ironise this. Mm. Mazeltov, you've won an award for producing a podcast. Then this is why you're in London because you're at the awards ceremony yesterday. This is why I'm in London in this luxurious, state of the art, with touchscreen control hotel, three star. Yeah. In uh, Lambeth. In in London's glittering Lambeth. Yes. Tell us about the show because like people might actually want to check out the award winning show. The show is called Brown Gal Can't Swim. Uh huh. And it's not you. It's not me. No, no. I, losing I, I, the title. No, exactly. And it's the story of Samaya Moogle, who was a presenter at BBC Radio Leicester. Uh-huh. And uh, basically, as she became an adult, she was thinking, "Well, why can't I swim? I can't swim. My friends can swim." She felt really left out when she go on holiday by the pool, all that kind of stuff. And she never learned how to swim. So it's the story of her sort of investigating in that and the conflict with her family, which you just wouldn't even think of as a white bloke. Yeah, like you know what you can wear in the pool, that kind right. of stuff. Because there are, I mean, it's, obviously this is a big topic that you go into detail on this show, so I'm yes. not going to tell you about it, but for the benefit of the audience listening, it is a thing, isn't it? I've noticed that ethnic minorities generally mm. aren't swimmers to the no. same extent as white people. You can see it looking around a swimming pool. Yeah, and and last night, after we won this prestigious award, uh, lots of people from you know minorities were coming up to us and saying... You know, thank you so much for doing that. I can't swim. Yeah. You know, and it's just something that I've not ever thought of or even considered because you just don't, do you? No. As a white bloke. So what was the actual award that you won? Best podcast at the Sports Journalism Awards. Congratulations. It's a very, very That's prestigious a proper, award. Well done. Well, yeah. I'd never heard of it. The Sports but, Journalism Awards. Yeah, I know it was good. Who was the biggest celebrity there? Piers Morgan. Why was Piers Morgan at a Sports Journalism Awards? He, oh, the Ronaldo thing. The Ronaldo thing. Yeah, he won for that. 
What did he win? Scoop of the year. Is that a scoop if Piers Morgan gets an interview with Ronaldo? Because presumably he's just got Ronaldo's phone number. Yeah, like he just texts Ronaldo and said, would you like to do an interview? Yeah. It no. would be a scoop if you interviewed Ronaldo. Absolutely. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it would. It would. He got booed, if that makes you feel any better. Anyway. Yeah, um, anyway. Bolstered by that success. Yes. We segue into our challenge for this month, which came from man fan George in Aberdeen, to mm. investigate the trend. I mean, it's bigger than a trend, isn't it? It's going to be an Olympic sport in 2024. That's why we're doing it. Absolutely. Um, talking of sports journalism, you are going to now you're an award-winning sports journalist. Oh my god, I am! <laughs> oh no! Oh god, my reputation is going to be shattered after this. Uh, you okay. are going to investigate the trend for break dancing. Well, no, Ollie oh, Man, I'm going oh. to stop you there. I can't believe you punched this already. Well, no, now I'm a now I'm an award-winning sports journalist. I have to correct you. It's actually break. Not break oh, dancing. Oh, love it, love it. It's okay. break. Why? Uh, break, basically, the, the term break comes from the rhythms and tunes. You can tell how cool I am with this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the DJ creates for the dancers. I'm not going to say break dancers. No. Um, yeah, what do you call breakers, them Breakers. Breakers. That's right. Okay. Which I thought Good, was um, a thing in a fuse box. New but, vocabulary. <laughs> but anyway, but, but for them to dance to. So yeah. you're like, the DJ is an integral part of the entire process, and and the, that's where that name comes from. I did not know that. I thought that you could take an old stereo and play something out of a cassette and breakdance to it, but the DJ has to be there. Well, in competitive breakdancing, absolutely. But yeah, right. there's nothing to stop you from actually playing some music out of a out of a you know a hi-fi on the street. That's, it's like that. Yeah, and that's the way it is. So the DJ won't be part of the Olympic teams. So they're just sort of part of the Olympic furniture, if you like, like the. You know, like the obstacles in skateboarding, like the, you know, the the bar in gymnastics. The DJ is part of the apparatus of the of the whole sort of competition. But you just said how integral it is. Yeah, but but so's the bar in gymnastics. I it's know. Simply, you can't do it without know, the bar. The bar doesn't have a bias towards a particular team, does it? Like, no, no. How do you know that the DJ is not going to just, you know, play out some baby tunes for Canada? Because the way that the competition itself works is that it's a head-to-head competition, one v one. Right, the person that loses uh, gets the least points, uh, gets eliminated. But they're dancing to the same track that the DJ's laid down. How's that fair? Unless every competitor gets the same dance, is what I'm saying. How do, how do you know? Like, okay. I don't know if they will have the same record, and then that's boring to watch. So the complexities of how this whole thing is is sort of judged, if you like, is was a bit of a mystery to me. So I, I reached out to a chap called DJ Renegade. Really lovely bloke. He's been in breakdancing since the 80s. He got into it when... Sorry, it's... correct. It's, it's called break these days. Oh, God! <laughs> Award-winning sports journalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You're break, never yeah. going to get Ronaldo's phone number. <laughs> I was just testing you. I was just testing you. But he, he's been involved in break yeah. uh, since uh, the early 80s when it was, it was imported from the United States, basically. And he was like, wow, this is really cool. I'm going to kind of get into this kind of stuff. And actually, the detail of how the judging is going to be uh, done in the Olympics hasn't actually been fully decided. But the actual competition and how that operates, I was speaking to him about that, and essentially, it's all very subjective. It's not like football. You score a goal, one goal. Score no, one. but right. it's a bit like ice figure skating or something, isn't it? In that there are certain moves they're going to be looking for to award, I presume. Yeah, well, and, and I asked him that. So you, you'd think, you know, how do you score a backflip, for example? That was my question to him. You know, well, how many points would you give a backflip? And he said, ah, well, that, this is the thing, I can't tell you because it d- depends in what context that backflip is done. Because you're against an opponent, if they do a particular move, say they did something, because it's like a dance battle, 
And then you were like, on the spot, you thought, right, well, I'm going to do my backflip, but I'm going to do it as a bit of a... Right. A bit of style as a bit of a diss to them. Yeah, a bit of a fuck you yeah. flip. Yeah. Then the judges would be like, wow, that's wow, amazing. you got that. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> and... I, I sound like I'm, I sound like I'm mocking. I'm just like, I'm genuinely, I'm excited by it. I'm excited by yeah. it. I'm not mocking. I okay, promise you, I'm not. Sure. And uh, then it could, they, they could get more points for that. So you can't just go, well, I'll give you 10 points so for that backflip. You use the phrase battle and I am interested in that. So so because because I always actually did think, I'm going to call it breakdancing because that's what I thought it was. It's not. It's I always thought the breakdancing was collaborative. Like you see people performing it on the street. You see kids performing it on the street. It looks like something everyone can join in. It's kind of an equal opportunities thing, right? It's cheap. You turn up, you go to the car park, you all start dancing. I thought it was quite huggy, but actually you're saying, no, it's like a rap battle. Well, the competitive side of it is, yeah. I, um, Renegade was telling me about, you know, the, the crews, the, there were crews basically that sort of existed back in the 80s. So this would, they were, you know, dancing crews. And that's, that's actually what, Break it ultimately led to what you see these sort of these dance troops like diversity, you know. On yeah. the, it, 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 it was born out of break. That's where that all kind of came from. So there was this sort of collaborative, just like any free sport. It's like a free sport, like skateboarding. All you're really kind of doing is hanging out with your mates and trying different tricks and different things and different moves, and people sort of looking on in admiration. And then you're trying to learn off one another. But the competitive side of it is obviously slightly different. And it's like, okay, this is you know, it's me versus them. That's why, you know, through this, you know, these head-to-head competitions, it's sort of finally sort of made its way to the Olympics. They've recognised that actually this could be an Olympic sport. And is it gaining traction internationally apart from the fact it's at the Olympics? Are more people doing it than before? It still feels like an 80s, 90s thing, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, it, and, and it's fallen in and out of favour, basically. In, in the mid-80s, it became a corporate selling tool. It was mm. like, oh man, we need to sell this new fizzy pop. Let's get some breakers in. But they would have said breakdancers because they're not award-winning sports journalists. Yeah. And they would have got them in to try and flog their, flog their wares. And it kind of lost popularity off the back of that. And actually... <laughs> <laughs> Renegade said that there was one dance crew left in the UK doing it and they're in Bournemouth not far from me oh, wow. <laughs> yeah but they were and he was like yeah word must not have got out from London that no one was doing it anymore and that's how he got into DJing because he was like you know not many people were doing it I still kept in touch with it but that got me into DJing and I ended up traveling around the world but where it didn't die were places like Germany Germany it was huge and it just kept going there kept but building. also I mean you made reference to Got Talent already that's mm. the other place that it lives on isn't it in the sense that you know you may not have a crew but you can practice at home in front of a mirror and put it on YouTube and then you know you're a breaker right yeah and I think that's where the resurgence has, has, has come from it's been born from is that you know, people have seen these dance troops, and you know, which are massive. You know, how many of them are in diversity? Like fifty-six. Mm. I don't know. So it's a lot of them, anyway. And realise that the heritage of that comes from break. And it's like, okay, well, how do I learn these moves? And then they found, you know, through YouTube, these old videos of people doing it back in the eighties, and it's kind of born this resurgence. And is there an element of pretense that comes from having to wear the streetwear to do it and have a certain attitude when really? It's gymnastics, right? I mean, what you're doing, the body popping, the going around on your head, there, there would be ways to formalise that in what looks more like a traditional sport, I guess. You know, why separate it out? You know, the people who are really good at it are great athletes, I presume. So what's the difference? Well, it, it, it's a different discipline. You're, you're, with gymnastics, say it's, I don't know, like vault or whatever, it's like there, there's a very specific thing that you're doing and, it, and it's sort of measured almost mathematically in kind of what you're trying to achieve. Whereas with something like break, you're... 
you know, there's things like musicality that you take into account, you know, how it's going with the rhythm and the beat. And I know there's rhythm, rhythmic gymnastics, but it looks completely different. And it's so that thing that you talk about, what they're wearing and the style and that kind of stuff, that it, it, it boils down to the attitude of the sport, the style of the sport. And the same goes for things like skateboarding, which I keep bringing up because I'm familiar with it. I know it. No, it is similar, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. It's a free sport. So it's more about your style and your expression of how you do it. You know, anybody could do a kickflip, but there's a beautiful kickflip and there's a slightly shoddy chonky one and and the, the same goes for sports like break and is there an age where you shouldn't be doing it anymore because i know that they i know he would have said no 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 we've got women who do it you know we've got plus size people we've got people of all different backgrounds yeah. and ages but really if you're not say under 30 you're going to look stupid aren't you yeah probably I mean, we're, we're i'm going to say yeah the, <laughs> yeah the age is probably about now 37 yeah yeah so um well we can find out yes should we do that well something i would never say to you in any other circumstance if i was sitting on a bed with you ollie but let's stop the foreplay because yeah. i've i've been told <laughs> i've been told that i am going to get to see you break dancing yeah, and i okay, am excited right. well, so yeah. what i thought well, what i thought is is because it's because it's new to the olympics in 2024 mm. you know like you see those um explainer videos like the BBC do it around the Olympics when you get a new sport in like so there was like three on three basketball for example I thought I would do something like that so I spoke to my mate Tim Warwood he's an Olympic commentator he does you know stuff on skateboarding all that kind of stuff and he makes those videos where he's kind of explaining new sports to laymans like us Mm -hmm. and I thought Tim how do I do this what do I need to think about and he's like just you just break it down in the most simple way break it down get it break it down now uh, break it down <laughs> I can't believe I just did that break it down in the most simplistic I deliberately left an awkward silence <laughs> I just thought I can let you judge for yourself listening at home I don't need to say anything to that <laughs> yeah okay and he was just like just keep it really simple keep it to the basics and just make it clear and concise and, and that's what I'm going to do I'm right. basically going to make an explainer video right, right for breakdancing which I'm going to sort of go through it with it with you now because you can help me workshop it a little bit because i haven't made it yet so okay so you're going to make this video i mean is this video available now as we listen to this no it's not available now i want i just want you to see what i'm thinking right. get a bit of feedback uh-huh. and then what i'm going to do is i'm going to get to making and then if you keep a lookout on your socials and stuff like that i will we'll post it so you're ready you're prepped okay. for the 2024 games so at the modern man yep. on twitter mm-hmm. at some point we yep. will be posting this video absolutely okay and it's going to look fresh <laughs> He did like a twirly thing and he pointed down. Right, but can you be my mic holder? Because I can't... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, so imagine, wide-angle lens, I'm nice and low, okay? I'm probably wearing a hat, baseball um, hat and some sunglasses. And I'm like, yo, so you want a break? I won't do... Maybe I'll do American. I don't know. Uh, That's important, you, isn't it? Can you do it with a... I mean, you said the last trooper from Bournemouth. Can you do it with a West Country accent? Roy, so you want a break, Roy? <laughs> okay. No, you can't. Okay. okay. Yeah. I'll just do it normal. I'll do it more normal. Accessible to sort of white middle-class men like me. So, you'd like to break. Excellent. You're going to need to learn some moves. We'll start with the top rock. <whistles> top rock is any move that you do just on your feet. I'm going to show you the front step. Go on. One foot forward, one foot back. Okay. One foot forward, one foot back. Yeah. Then get the arms in. One foot forward, one foot back. One foot forward, one foot back. Why are you laughing? Because you look like Drunk River Dance. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so that's... So you've got your top rock down. Yeah. Next... I'm not sure. (laughs) Next, you need to focus on your down rock. Yes. This is when you're on your hands... 
and your feet. Okay. And I'll probably do something about like, you know, demonstrate your strength and yes. your agility, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to show you the helicopter. I remember this from my oh. school playground. He's put the phone down on the bed. Yeah, some well, some activity is to... going to have to happen. Right? Is there enough space? Your hands. Okay, it's a small bend, bedroom. Bend your left knee yeah. and put your right leg oh, out. Oh, okay, you've learned a thing. Yeah, yeah. Make yeah. sure you warm up before you do this move. This is what I look like in my Pilates class. Exactly yeah. like that. My hamstring like, is very. Oh, exactly. Yeah. How long can I hold this for whilst talking? And then slowly. It's about ten seconds, right? Slowly spin <laughs> your left leg. Your right leg round under your arm. Yeah. Lift your back left leg up so it goes under. As in a helicopter motion, then your right hand up, and then you get slowly faster. Good, I was wondering if you were going to get faster. faster. Look at that, you're doing oh, it. You're going oh, faster. Sick, bro. Please don't. Please, oh please don't have your head. You're so close to smashing oh, your head on the floor. Ribs. Use okay. the ribs, yeah. So that now, was good. You, you, when you started getting faster, I was like, he's not going to go fast. Yeah. He can only do it slow, oh, like an arthritic elderly person. You but can no, see you see why it's an Olympic sport. It's, uh, <laughs> well, you know. I, I can certainly see that other people would be able to do it to a better standard. Okay. So you've got your down rock down. Yeah. Next. How, many, how, how many of these are there? There's Not just four, in your video. Four, yeah, four. four in your video. I know, it would be no, no, but no, fine. But Edits, <laughs> transitions. But how many in the Olympics? Like hundreds. Oh, the actual moves there's yeah. loads, but these are like the four the four core key ones areas. Yeah. Right. The moves aren't called those things. I'm so out of breath. <laughs> I love it. I'm out of breath from the helicopter. Yeah. Next, you want to nail your power moves. Your power moves are your big centerpieces, the bits where the audience go, wow! <laughs> I can see this video trending for all the wrong reasons. Right, yeah, I know, yeah. Um, DJ Renegade, I'm really sorry if you. T- <laughs> I, I promise you, I'm not taking the mick. I am genuinely yeah, trying yeah. to no, you embrace are, yeah. some of the hysterical. There's, a, there's only so much you, you can do with, yes. with, with, with what you got. I'm going to show you the backspin. Yeah. Now, can I just highlight, arguably, right, this is a <laughs> down rock move, okay? But I do not have the athleticism sure. to perform a backflip. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, I'm not going to criticise, I'm in no better shape. Now, I've only, I've only, I say done this twice. Yeah. I've only, I have, I basically haven't done it twice. Mm. Okay, so uh, what you do... There's a hot coffee <laughs> here on the table, remember. just watch out. I'm going to sit on my bum to do this first, because okay. there's not much room. All right. And you're going to swing yourself round clockwise, mm. lift your legs up, and then you'll go onto your back for the backspin, and then try and style it out. Here we go. Okay. Oh, so then style it out with a freeze nice yeah yeah and then i'm back up that i mean front step if i may (laughs) stick van dyke yeah well just and what i threw in there was a very brief freeze did you freeze is the last discipline you need to learn yeah that's the that's the move that i've seen in that advertising you were discussing yeah Yeah. Um, yeah again i don't have the upper body strength to perform Moves such as the baby freeze, which basically involves having your legs in the air, but I can stand still. Yeah. <laughs> um, was that the big triumphant climax, or is there? There's, you said four. Is there a fourth? Which was the freeze right. that I did at the end. Fine, good. Yeah, I think because I'm a bit worried for your. I think you need to sit down. Yeah, I got a, a little bit of gas. I think someone <laughs> someone needs to go to Holland yeah. and Barrett. <laughs> Actually, yeah, she wants to have a little swig of coffee. Yeah, That'll okay, help me out. sure. It, that is exhausting. Ooh. Well, I think I think we can all look forward to seeing that on the internet. Yeah, and um, it will be much slicker. I promise. It will be like you know. Hard to imagine. The production values will be frank. Well, I'm an award-winning producer. So yes. <laughs> Do you think the break is here to stay at the Olympics? Do you think it will be with us every four years? It's really hard to say. Actually, there are quite a lot of uh, uh, sports over the years which haven't 
carried on. They've only ever made it as a one-hit wonder. Oh, yeah. Croquet. Yes. Cricket. Really? Yeah. Cricket was in the Olympics. Cricket and was not. in the Olympics. Yeah. Why did they? What would what would have changed? I wonder. Well, you know, maybe they couldn't think of a format that was sort of snappy enough, yeah, quick enough. I'm sure you it was that. Like, yeah, exactly. But you, I mean, that seems inherent to me in the game of cricket. Like anything that you need to know about cricket, you knew for the 100 years prior to making an Olympic sport. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, lacrosse. <laughs> You right. know, another another sport that's kind of only made it. Tug of War was only one that made oh, it. For, that's a that's shame. One I should, I'd should, watch. That would, should come back. Anyway, but they're the kinds of sports that have kind of only, you know, managed one time in the Olympics. And they do do it as a bit of a showcase. And break was a sort of a showcase event at the Youth Olympics. So it's hard to say. It just depends, you know, whether or not it, it picks up traction and does well. So like skateboarding made its debut at the last Olympics. And that was incredibly popular. So it's making a return for 2024 and it's carrying okay. on. But whether I love you, skateboarding. You sit down. You're out well, of I breath. I know. Jesus. Okay. Let's, uh, <coughs> let's give you a challenge for next ooh, month's show, shall we? Me knees. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't going to involve so much physical activity. Oh, please, no. Um, <laughs> it's from man fan Maxine in Dalston who writes, mm. uh, there have been lots of immersive exhibitions in the past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Van Gogh one and the Dali one, for example. I would like to challenge Ollie to investigate the trend for immersive exhibitions by making his own. I actually know what she's talking about. Yeah, of course you do, because you're all about your VR and your... No, no, no. I, no I've just seen people post them on, on like Instagram and stuff of these like big projections in rooms of like, yeah, of Dali and like Van Gogh and their yeah. paintings sort of coming to life and stuff. I've never been to one. No, neither have I. But I've seen them on Instagram. I don't know if that's a good thing that it means that probably the first one I'll ever go to is the one you make for me. I don't know. It'll be a brilliant thing. Of course it will. Yeah. I suppose it's a bit like the escape room challenge we did, isn't it? In that by making it, you can kind of uh, find out what makes an immersive exhibition work and what you shouldn't do. Yeah, because in my head, it's is just projections. Yeah. But I'd imagine there's quite a lot more that goes into it, which is what I found out about escape rooms, wasn't it? So and, that's and in break, I like and this break one. dancing. So, even, so many layers. Yeah, I don't even have to fake pretend that I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. Good. I genuinely am. Good. If you have a trend that you would like to challenge Ollie to investigate on a future edition of The Zeitgeist, you can submit it via the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Ollie, go and have a shower. <laughs> Didn't want to say. It's intimate in here. Yes. In a moment, you will meet uh, Rosie. It's a cracker of an interview this month. But first, our record of the month. And it's from fellow podcaster Rory Powers, uh, who does the hugely entertaining This Paranormal Life podcast. Uh, but he's also a pretty good musician. This is off his forthcoming EP. It's called Down Bad. And it's out now. You got me down bad over my head. We've been here once before, but I'm saying it again that it's too late. It's never too late. You're calling on weekends and I'm fighting with your friends. I was too busy trying to be someone else. Instead of time, guess I gave you hell. In last month's show, uh, in our sex section, The Foxhole, Alex and I discussed ethical porn. How can you know if the adult material you're looking at online was made with consent? 
and that the performers were being well treated, or whether you can trust that your OnlyFans subscriptions money actually benefits them directly. Well, someone who's at the coalface on all of this is Rosie Hodsden, an activist at National Ugly Mugs, a charity providing greater access to justice and protection for sex workers, especially those who've been victims of violence. Rosie's journey into advocacy began as a sex worker herself, making cam videos from her student flat in Newcastle. So I got my iPad and I set up a little rig in my bedroom with a stool and some books to get the camera at the right angle on on my not especially new iPad. It wasn't a particularly great camera on there, but I set the camera up and I opened up the blinds and prayed that no one was going to walk past because the bedroom I was in at the time was like a semi-basement room. So the the window of the room was above the pavement. Like the pavement was, was sort of at one level and then the window was just above it. So you wouldn't see in it unless you were desperately looking, but I was just like, of all the times someone might do it, this is going to be the time it happens. I pressed stop on on my iPad. Um, I then went on to iMovie and I edited the video. And at that time, editing for me was chop off the beginning, chop off the end where I turn the camera on and off and get in position, check the sounds all right, render, upload. And so in her early 20s, Rosie became a content creator. But her journey down that path and her particular interest in kink and fetish had its roots much earlier. I was really into writing as a teenager, and so I was on a lot of fan fiction websites and young writers communities and things like that. And these were communities that had people of all ages from sort of 13-ish to, to adults. And the communities were really great, but they were very much about sort of self-censoring and self-policing. So you could mark stories as being suitable for people of particular ages. But if you wanted to get past that, you just had to click a button saying that you were over a particular age. And so as a teenager, I ended up reading a lot of very non-teenage suitable material um, because I was curious about it and the more I read it the more I started to not only understand myself as a person who was not straight and not necessarily vanilla either I started to understand just how much was out there and Honestly, a lot of the stuff I was reading wasn't actually lesbian erotica. I was reading a lot of gay erotica, sort of male-male fan fiction, or many, many men in some cases. And Mm. that was where I really started to discover my interest in sort of kink and fetish and where I just learned that this whole world was open to me. What kind of thing when you're talking about kink and fetish? Oh God, everything. I was really into anything that was sort of power exchange orientated. So dominance and submission, particularly. Bondage, also great. Um, And then you're getting into the really sort of niche fetishes. Um, Medical fetish was a really big one for me as well. So these are things I felt like I discovered 
I felt like I recognized a part of myself in there. It wasn't that I think I read them and I developed that fetish. I think I read them and something clicked inside me. Fast forward a few years, and just two weeks after sitting her A-levels, Rosie took a big step and attended her first munch. So a munch is basically a meetup of people who are into various forms of kink, usually held at a pub. Um, I snuck out of my house and told my mum that I was going out to see some of my work friends and that I was going to stay in town and have a drink with them. And I went down to the pub as this very fresh-faced 18-year-old. I stood outside the pub for 10 minutes pretending to look at the menu to work up the courage to go in for the first time, not knowing that I was actually stood by the window right where the munch was being held and everyone (laughs) had been looking at me the entire time. I mean, I presume at that age you hadn't had that many sexual experiences at all and then you're going straight into kink and fetish. That must have been quite challenging as well, in a way. I was 18 in a space where most people were at least 10 years older than me, if not more than that. So I went in quite wary. I think I didn't know how else to experience it. The best and most comfortable way for me to be is to be as authentically myself as possible. Um, I am neurodivergent and I really struggle a lot of the time with things like masking, with things like um, sort of putting on the right impression in a social situation and conforming to sort of societal norms and and that sort of stuff. So So just, I mean, to be clear, I know neurodivergent is kind of the buzzy way to say it, but you're talking about what autism? Autism, yes. So that's, it's easier for you in a way, do you think, to walk into a room and say, this is what I want? Absolutely. I don't, I find pretense and I find having to compromise bits of myself for very, very difficult. Mm. So for me, that actually is also the kink community is full of neurodivergent people. It's full of people with autism and ADHD and various other forms of neurodivergence. So I think I just found my people there. I suppose it's also full of people that are looking for casual encounters. But was that you? Or were you looking for that kind of sexual relationship within a relationship? Kind of both. So I wasn't completely inexperienced when I went in, but I had very, very little experience. And I didn't really have a lot of confidence to have casual encounters. I wasn't opposed to the idea. I just kind of wanted to see what would happen from that. But at university, Rosie did find herself in a long-term relationship, albeit one that kind of sprung up on her. We'd actually moved in together completely accidentally in that we were friends. We'd met at our university's filmmaking society. We both needed a place to live. We moved in together and then we accidentally got into a relationship with each other. Just in that way that two people who kind of, who really like each other and then become very physically It is intimate. It's not like sex intimate, but it is an intimacy when you're sharing a space and your lives together like that. And I think from that, our relationship really organically grew. But as a result of that, what then ended up happening is that 
when my partner a few months later found himself out of work and was on universal credit at the time, I also ended up being pulled into that um, because of living with a romantic partner, essentially. Oh, as in like the actual government calculations of how much your joint income is, you mean? Yes. At the time, my income was just over £15,000 a year. And because it was a grant, it was not taxed or anything. It wasn't counted as income in the same way. But it meant that when my partner was having to go through all of the universal credit applications and visits to the job centre constantly, I was also having to do all of that. It was kind of weird for someone that at the time I hadn't been in a relationship with for very long at all. It was Mm. months at that point. A PhD stipend at the time was not a huge amount to live off. And even now it's even worse for people who are doing that. What was your PhD in? So my PhD was in law. Okay. Um, And it was looking at the way in which people who make and create kink pornography interact with the law um, so at the time there was all that stuff going on about the uh, the sort of porn regulations the face sitting ban as people might have might have heard of it referred to um, and then also the whole sort of porn age verification stuff that was going through the, the government at the time so the work that I was doing was looking at how the industry in the UK is shaped and then also how performers and producers were responding to that legislation as well. Okay, so your experience of the kink community then had gone beyond being just a member of the community, a kind of, I don't know, service user, <laughs> yeah. to being someone who actually had connections with people who professionally provided services because you were studying it for your PhD. Yes. A lot of the people that I worked with through my PhD were people that I'd met through the kink scene. Especially in the scene that I was in at the time, there was a really strong contingent of people who were doing sex work in various forms. Everything from escorting to pro-doming to content creation to professional porn to all of these aspects of sex work. Camming, uh, phone sex, all of those sorts of things. So I'd always felt just very accepting of it. It was just, it was a fact that people did that. I was working full time on the PhD. It was long and stressful and difficult. And so I ended up just one day deciding just to do it. But this was about making money. It was about making money. So you were, I mean, because obviously there are some people who share images of themselves online, both for money, you know, through like an OnlyFans account, for example, but also for free, because part of what actually gets them off is other people seeing it. But in this case, you didn't want to do a free account. You only wanted this to be something people paid for. Absolutely. How do you go about getting those customers? So I had shared some stuff online for free and actually one of the biggest customer bases I ended up building was on Reddit. So I used to share nudes on Reddit generally. And then those became a way for me to segue into marketing, essentially. So Mm. I had those established pictures up there and then I could use those to post on the actual more specified buying and selling subreddits to say, 
this is who I am. This is this is what I do. Buy stuff from me, essentially. So you've got the pictures as a starter. And then if you want videos, if you want camming services, if you want used underwear, if you want socks, if you want a text chat, whatever that might be. I've got that sort of root in there, I think. I don't know if anybody who is is listening to this has a picture of my face available, but I am not somebody who has the sort of typically beautiful, conventionally attractive, very sort of sexy face. I look like, I look young. I have an absolute baby face. I am in my mid to late 20s and I get ID'd constantly. That's the sort of look I have. And that's what I have to play into. I don't make stuff that you're going to find in any mainstream you're not going to just be able to sort of type it into a search on a free tube site and find the sort of thing that you're wanting. This is the stuff that people want from a person with a specific look, with a specific fetish. And how much money were you making in those early days? Not a lot. Certainly in the first few few months, you were sort of getting about 100, 150, 200 pounds a month. Okay, so what's a typical cost then? I mean, what were you charging? Probably too little. Um, I tended to charge by uh, by minute, so a video that was five minutes long would be five dollars, ten minutes ten dollars, and then only if it was a video that required something really specific or you were having to use a lot of sort of extra resources, then you'd add a bit more on. So if it was just me by myself and I didn't need anything new, basically a dollar a minute. Okay, and when you say needed anything new, so there were requests that came in, were there, from strangers saying, Mm -hmm. I want you to do this very particular thing. What kind of thing? Everything again. Um, I never quite understood why I got this because I always made videos that were very sort of submissive orientated, but I used to get a lot of sort of domination giantess content. Giantess? Giantess. So the person on the other side was normal sized and I was like wildly big. Or the person on the other... I was a normal size and the person on the other end had shrunk for some some <laughs> magical reason. And so uh, that also tended to correspond a lot with sort of foot fetish. So what you would generally do is you'd have the camera on the ground and you'd sort of yeah. talk over it, sort of to give that perspective and sort of wave your feet around, maybe sort That's of... That's really acting. I mean, you know, it's not like you have industrial light and magic to hand to help yeah. with the special effects. <laughs> You would get requests that were sort of two sentences long of, I want you to be a giantess who has shrunk me to a tiny size and you are threatening to crush me with your bare feet. And I want that to be five minutes long, have fun with it. Or you'd get people who were super specific, where it would be like, I want you to be a giantess who has crushed me to a tiny size and you are going to crush me with your bare feet and I want you to say these words and I want you to do these angles and show me these things and give me this view and I want it to be 20 minutes long. Some people would write out full scripts (laughs) and it was, I actually liked those people because that made my life a lot easier. There's only so many ways of saying I'm going to destroy you with my beautiful bare feet. But it wasn't just Rosie's feet being displayed on camera, it was her face as well. So one day she decided to tell her parents what she'd been up to. It was very much a case of, we don't get this, 
we don't understand this. If you are being safe and if you are doing what you can to look after yourself, then that is okay. Um, I think the fact they don't get it probably helps, honestly. I think it is the fact that they don't necessarily understand quite what that landscape looks like and it's not a sphere that I think either of them would ever have any sort of involvement in themselves means that so long as there's no chance of them coming across it, it's totally fine. Why tell them? I mean, I get wanting to be open and honest. I get not wanting to hide. But I mean, I never discussed with my parents the sexual stuff that I was looking at online. I've never really gone into detail about the actual specifics of it. So in terms of like the content or anything like that, that I make. But I think it's a form of protection. I think for me, if they know, then nobody can use that to harm me. It's such a huge risk, especially with something like online sex work, that risk of blackmail or being discovered. And again, especially if you're face out. How did your partner feel about it? I think he really did struggle a lot at the time in terms of, I think he felt very powerless and I think he felt, I mean, trying to find a job at the best of times is horrible. The entire job hunting process is awful. And I remember one very vividly where I was really excited because he got an interview for a job that I thought would be absolutely perfect for him. And he went to the interview and the interview was taking place at a school and they had three candidates who, and they all took them on a tour of the school, the three of them together before going into their interviews. And at the end, they took them into the head teacher's office and the head teacher went to the first one and shook his hand and said, hi, nice to meet you. I went to went to my partner and said, hi, nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. And then he turned to the third guy and said, Roger, lovely to see you. Really nice to have you being interviewed for this. Really nice that you've applied. Mm-hmm. And just the how demoralizing that was, because he'd put all that time into prepping, all that time into going to the interview, which was a, a reasonable distance from where we lived. All that hope that he could have gotten that job had, had gone. There were things very occasionally that I was doing that needed a second pair of hands, um, primarily camera operating. So like, a, this was a really lucky stroke in that we had met at a filmmaking society. We both <laughs> knew how to work a camera. We both knew how to edit things. But I used to, one of the things I used to film a lot of was splashing content. So that what was- What is splashing? Sort of, so splashing is essentially using things like food or like TV style, like slime, essentially to sort of essentially play with cover yourself with cover other people with that's it's a very silly sort of fetish Um, and I used to make a lot of that because I really enjoyed doing it Um, but with something like that when you've got hands that are covered in like methyl cellulose you can't then operate a camera so he would often do things like shooting those sorts of things because they often required hands that were not wet and slippery did you worry that he'd get jealous i think i did and he never expressed to me that he did one of the ways i always framed it and i think did help was that at the end of the day i'm always coming home to you and i can go out and i can do whatever it is that I might need to do to earn money and I might sometimes enjoy 
the creation of it and I might sometimes enjoy the acts of it but I'm not feeling anything towards the person on the other side and so my emotional connection was always going to be where my home was. Still to come, Rosie's side hustle starts to feel more like a career and a very bad day at work spurs on her activism, fighting for sex workers' rights. That's when The Modern Man returns, after this. Back to my conversation with Rosie now, and a warning that this part includes a discussion of sexual assault. Rosie had initially got into creating cam content for money. Partly, yes, as a way of exploring her interests in kink and fetish, but mainly, frankly, to subsidise her household income, whilst her partner searched for a job and they attempted to live off her PhD stipend. But as her videos gained traction, opportunity knocked. So one of the things that I really enjoyed when I got more established is that I actually started to move into more produced content. So it wasn't me at home with a camera, it was me in a studio doing things with cool lighting setups and other producers and other performers and things like that. Possibly one of my favourite experiences is that I ended up going to Tenerife for 10 days. It was a bizarre experience um, looking back on it, but at the time it just felt great. <laughs> we did one scene with sort of big metal chastity belts and I was wearing this pair of eight inch platform heels and I'm five foot seven, so I'm not short, but being six foot three for a few days of my life was quite an experience. The second scene we shot there, we ended up building this bondage frame with a Sibian on it. And a Sibian is a vibrator that you sit on and it's incredibly powerful. And then we attached a fucking machine to this structure so that two people could be on it at once. And we were in these sort of full body latex cat suits at the same time with zips to access various places. And that was truly delightful and one of the silliest experiences I've ever had, and yet it was still really fun. You're going from, I mean, in layman's terms, you're going from someone who makes your own content into what sounds a bit like porn. It was always porn. It's all porn anyway. I think definitely there are people who like to put a divide between the two of them, in that I think content creation it feels very sanitised and it feels very safe. Well, you're in control, right? Whereas yeah. I suppose it's the professionalisation of it, but also that lack of control, that worry that you're going into an environment that you don't control, maybe it isn't as safe. I certainly did have those worries. And I think that I was incredibly lucky in that the company that I did my first ever professional shoot for was very centered around making sure that those experiences were really positive. And again, that focus on authenticity was a really big thing for them. So a lot of the people who were being the producers had also been performers themselves. At what point does this feel like it isn't your side hustle anymore? And, you know, you're not a PhD student, you're a porn star. <laughs> that is an incredibly good question. And honestly, I'm not sure it ever did. 
I've been sat on sets writing my thesis before. I've taken my laptop to so many porn sets and sat trying to write up lit reviews and things like that. I fit it around. I generally tend to think of things like this as the same way you think of any other job. Um, most of the time you have a reasonable day. Some days you have a really good day and very, very occasionally you get a really, really awful day. I did have one experience where a producer that I'd worked with a few times ended up quite significantly crossing my boundaries on set um, and ended up sexually assaulting me as part of a scene that was being filmed. This happened around 2019. Um, we'd had a really good working relationship the previous two times we'd filmed together, but the third time We'd shot the first scene and it, it had gone fine. Um, we were sort of renegotiating for the second scene and I'd said something along the lines of, you did this thing to me in the first scene, I really didn't like it, could you not do that again to me, please? Um, and he was like, yeah, that that's absolutely fine. And then we got to the scene and the sort of stuff we were filming was very physically intense and also often involved a lot of restraints and um, sort of bondage and things like that. And we set up for the scene. I was tied up in the position that I, I was going to be in for that particular scene. It wasn't like heavy sex stuff. It was very much sort of hard BDSM orientated. So I was really the only focus of the camera. Um, he didn't really appear on camera. You, you could see hands, you could see things, you could hear him, but you couldn't see who this person was. Um, and so we set up, I was tied up in the right sort of position. And then he essentially said to me, you can't escape. I can do what I want to you. And then proceeded to completely walk all over that boundary that I had set. I still have a lot of fear about that situation. I still have a lot of fear about that person and I wouldn't want to put myself in that situation again. I was able to turn to my friends. I was able to turn to organizations for support. I was able to, to heal from that and getting the video taken down, I don't think is necessary for me to heal. Is it still being sold? Is it still out there? As far as I know, it is. I'm kind of okay with that in that for me, I would far rather it be out there and I never have to think or deal with it um, or have to ever contact that person again than to try and get it taken down. I, I don't love that it's out there. But he's still out there making videos. Um, he is still out there making videos. Um, he has his name in the mud in our community. And this is one of the reasons why I suggest so strongly for anybody doing any form of sex work to connect with others who are doing that, to learn about the safety mechanisms in place, to learn about people you can check in with, to get in touch with people who can support you with things. And the community and the people that I have worked with have been so important in terms of my physical well-being and my emotional well-being. It's in these communities where we share this information with each other, where we keep each other safe.
because if nobody else is going to keep us safe, then we have to do it ourselves. I, I mean, I've experienced sexual assault outside of porn and outside of sex work as well. And I honestly don't know any woman who hasn't. It's about people taking advantage of you. And I just happened at that moment in time to be in a position where I was taken advantage of by somebody who wanted that power over me. And it just so happened that that happened through porn. You use the phrase sex work to cover all kinds of stuff. This is how, in the end, what you were studying for your PhD comes into your advocacy professionally. Talk to me about that. So we use sex work as an umbrella term, as a way to bring together concerns across anybody who might be exchanging sex for money or resources. And this is not to say that anybody who is doing sex work will have similar experiences. Everybody's experience is completely unique. The term is used to be able to, first of all, move away from the idea of what we call prostitution, which is quite a legally loaded term and also to put the emphasis on work. And so much of what sex workers as a collective want is this idea of workers' rights, workers' safety, the ability to work in the same way as anybody else with legal protection and unionization and recourse when things go wrong and recognition as being workers as well. One of the biggest things that a lot of sex workers faced in the pandemic particularly is that so many of them weren't eligible for any of the government supports because they weren't recognized as workers. And so sex workers were completely left out in the cold when it came to pandemic support and having to essentially put their own forms of support in place within their community. Give us an example. I mean, you know, three things that you would really like to see as protection, three things that really should exist for sex workers that doesn't. The first thing is what we call full decriminalisation, which is a very fancy word essentially saying stop criminalising sex work and stop criminalising things that exist around it. So at the moment in the UK, it is legal to sell sex. It is illegal to buy sex in Northern Ireland, but it's legal everywhere else in the UK. But so many of the surrounding activities are illegal. So, for example, sex workers can't work together for safety because that's brothel keeping. They can't consensually hire third parties, so security or drivers or maids, um, to help make their working lives easier. And legalisation has its advantages for people who can meet regulations, people who are in positions of quite high privilege. But if you can't meet those regulations, you're still going to face a high degree of punishment and policing power over it. So that's why we ask for decriminalization instead. Secondly, a better welfare system. And this doesn't go for sex work, this goes for everybody. There is so much about the intersection between the welfare state and support for people and sex work and how at times of austerity more and more people are pushed into doing sex work to make up for insufficient benefits, insufficient wages, insufficient things like disability support or childcare support or 
financial support for asylum seekers. These are all of the sorts of things that push people into sex work in places of significant financial need. I started sex working because universal credit was insufficient and I had the ability to scrape by every month, but scraping by is surviving, it's not living. And thirdly, I think what we want and what we need is a complete power shift. We need to make society as safe as possible for everybody. And again, this is sex workers, but it's also everything that intersects with sex work. It's everything from ending things like misogyny and homophobia and transphobia and racism and xenophobia and the hostile environment and issues that GRT, Gypsy Roma Traveller people face. All of these groups are so routinely let down by systems that fail to support them in work, that fail to support them to meet their needs, that are constantly pushing them out to the edges of society. And again, when we're not included in society, that again is when more people are going to be turning to sex work because these are places that, certainly in in some of the research I've done, these are places where people can... A, meet their financial needs, and B, face some sort of validation for who they are. Can all of that be done, though, do you think, whilst preserving anonymity for people who use sex workers? Because it seems to me that's part of the reason that legislation struggles with this, Mm. is it's obvious what it would do to families and social structures if all of that information was public. I feel like probably the best place to look to is New Zealand on that front. So New Zealand is the place in the world that has the closest thing to a full decriminalisation model. It's not quite fully decriminalised, but they have had mostly decrim for sort of the last 20 years or so at this point. And there's really not been a huge impact in terms of selling or buying. So we have seen that this is something that is is completely possible. And I think it is something that, I don't think it's just possible, I think it's necessary. Rosie Hodston. And you can find out more about the charity she works for, National Ugly Mugs, at nationalugglymugs.org. And if you've been affected by anything you've heard in Rosie's story, there are people you can reach out to. The Survivors Trust is one we'd recommend. We put a link to them and to other support organisations in the show notes. And remember, we love to hear your life stories on this show. So if you would like to come on the show, do reach out using the feedback form at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Still to come, can you spot the difference between a short vagina and a low cervix? I think we know the woman who can. More adult chat with Alex Fox in the foxhole after this. Right, well, I'd normally say words to the effect of time for the sex bit, but uh, we've been talking about sex for quite a while in this episode already, so I suppose I'll just say, here's some more with Alex Fox. I am still getting over the ultimate word nerd geek freak out because, Ollie Man, I met... Susie Dent. Fuck off. I know. The lexicographer, the etymologist, the queen of Dictionary Corner on Countdown met the queen of dicks in the corner and countdowns. Did you try and wangle a slot on Countdown? 
I, I, Softly <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me if I tried to wangle Susie's slot then. And there's a lesbian fantasy for the ages. Uh, no, I didn't. I was just so starstruck. Uh, she challenged the audience to come up with some neologisms, to, to invent some new words. Uh, one of which was a term for words that make you feel uncomfortable. Words that you just like, that you don't like. You know how a lot of people yeah. don't like moist. Uh, yes, it gives give them the, the ick. ick. Yeah. Yes. So I came up with linguistics with a K on it. Linguistics. As good as a noun, how would you use it in a sentence, though? Uh, well, I can reveal that Susie Dent's linguistics are gusset, flange and bulbous. Flange has another meaning, doesn't it? Is it a plumbing thing? I don't know. The, the point is not the definition of flange. I know. The point is that Su- when Susie Dent says flange, she doesn't like how it feels in her oral cavity. Let's take your questions of sex. This one's from Robert, who says, I am in an open relationship. One of my extras, now he doesn't use inverted commas around that word, but I think we can all feel them. One of my extras has a problem. She has a very short vagina, a.k.a. low cervix. I think it's about five centimetres, but she didn't discover this until I told her the first time we, and consequently she, had sex. She seems to appreciate that this will be a problem for her enjoying sex going forward into her delayed journey of sexual discovery. But the thing that's stopping her from engaging head-on with this obstacle is the same thing that stopped her from seizing opportunities from courting suitors until she was 26. And he's got a distinctive writing style, this man. It's all got a little uh, bit medieval. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was brought up in a Muslim home and still lives with her family in London, where she would also like to build a career so she'll never be far from home. Alex, what can she do? How can she do it subtly? How long will it take? How painful will it be? So there you go. Question about another person's cervix from someone who's sort of in a relationship with her. I don't know if she knew he was sending this in. Uh, There's a postscript. He says, I'd say another thing that is stopping her is her weird approach to sex. She's very weirded out, doesn't approve of my lifestyle, but keeps ringing me up for sex or, quote, practice. That one is in inverted commas. I think she is stopping herself from becoming sex positive to protect the innocent image that her mum has of her. Okay, well, I'm going to do my favourite thing then of breaking down this whole challenging sexual chicken into more manageable bite-sized nuggets. First of all, a low cervix, if you had one, uh, and a short vagina, if you had one, are actually not the same thing. The easiest way to illustrate the difference is to think of a bottle with a cork in it. If you were to have a short vagina, that would mean that the uh, the neck of the bottle itself would be quite stubby. It would be yeah. quite shorter than expected. If you had a low cervix, the cervix being the base of the opening of the womb, the, the bottom of the uterus that sort of sits at the top uh, of the vagina, that would be a little bit like having a cork that was pushed very very far down into the bottle. So you could have uh, a stumpy short bottleneck, which would be a short vagina. You could have a a low sitting cork, which would be a low cervix. And you could have both, but they are actually separate things. Would I be right in saying the short vagina would be more common? uh, I mean, I suppose suppose the reason I'm saying that is because Short by whose standards, right? I mean, there's a scale, so some people have shorter ones. I know the standard, though, Ollie, because I got it from Narendra Paiskal, who is a consultant gynaecologist at London Gynaecology. Uh, and he told me that the average length of a vaginal canal, that being the, the distance between that vaginal entrance and the structures at the top, so the, the cervix, it, it tends to be anywhere between 8 and 11 centimetres. Um, there's no specific t- medical term for having a shallow or a short vagina, but 5 centimetres 
centimeters would probably be considered on the short side if that were what was definitely happening for this woman. Um, However, a shorter vagina can be quite a natural feature uh, and it doesn't always potentially pose a massive problem because several things happen during arousal when you're stimulated, when you're turned on, that make everybody's vagina bigger. There's a process called tenting. Um, If you think of a a normal vaginal canal a little bit like a deflated balloon, I'm really with it with with the similes today aren't I deflated balloons bottlenecks corks but if you think of an unaroused vag a little bit like a deflated balloon so it's sort of shriveled it's it's folded in on itself like the edges are are, are stuck together yeah when people get turned on the walls of the vagina expand, they plump up, they, it, the whole thing gets wider. And also due to muscular contractions higher up in the body, the whole yeah. uterus, the womb actually moves up. So for most people, being turned on means that even a shorter a vagina that could potentially be on the shorter side should become bigger. What about um, a low cervix then? Could that be a problem if it is one? Uh, it, it potentially could be. And, and for this one, I spoke to Dr. Eleanor Drager, who's a consultant in genitourinary medicine, which she said a, a low cervix is tends to be a problem that's seen in older people or people who have been through childbirth. In a younger person, it would be on, a little bit unusual. Uh, we don't know this woman's exact age, I don't think. We just know that she wasn't courting suitors until she was 26. Um, Ellen, Dr. Eleanor Drager told me that um, later in life, what's called a pop can occur, or, or after you've had children, um, which is the <laughs> the rather horribly descriptive um, acronym for pelvic organ prolapse. When Whoa. one of you, where, We're back one to of the shriveled balloon again, aren't we? <laughs> well, this is one when one or more of the organs in the pelvis kind of do pop down from their normal position and bulge into the vagina, which can make it feel like the cervix might be lower or the vagina might be but, shorter. But so what? Be... So, but is it? But it's uncomfortable. Is it? What's the issue? You, in some cases, you can actually see it on the outside of the body, depending on how uh, how bad the prolapse is. Uh, it usually feels quite uncomfortable and like right. a heavy feeling, like something's ha- hanging down in you. Um, it, whilst it's not unusual for the the uterus and and the cervix to move around a little bit in younger people, for for anything in that part of the body to be hanging so low in a younger woman that it's causing problems when she's maybe not a mother, which I presume we'd know about because of she would have likely had more sexual experiences. Or, or not had some kind of traumatic experience or, or incident or injury here would be unusual. There is a, a syndrome that you can be born with called meyer rokitansky kunsterhauser syndrome. Disastrous Terry Gilliam film, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, Well, it's not seen very often. Only about one in every 4,500 women are born with this. But it's a congenital issue that's characterised by an underdeveloped vagina and uterus. Um, Lots of people don't know that they have this until later in life because you develop all the normal secondary sexual characteristics when you go through puberty. So you get pubic hair, you develop breasts. It's only when the periods don't arrive because of this underdevelopment in the, the, the vagina and the uterus that you will be usually sent for an ultrasound and this will be discovered. There's a chance that maybe this person has this and either doesn't know about it or perhaps isn't disclosing it um, because 
Unfortunately, if you have this syndrome, it means that you can't become a biological parent without using a surrogate. And in some cultures, if there is an expectation and a great honour placed on the idea of being a mother, then potentially there might be a religious influence and some shame and some stigma associated with having that syndrome and sharing that knowledge that is a reach though if i'm honest i'm trying to i'm trying to cover all bases here but i think that combination of potential possibilities would be very rare indeed dr drager did also throw up the possibility of fgm female genital mutilation i think this would likely be evident on the outside of the genitals but certain damage to the genitals inflicted by fgm can lead to scar tissue causing constrictions and a narrowing of the vaginal canal But both Dr. Drager and I did suspect that there might be a rather more straightforward explanation. This is this person's first sexual experience, potentially their first experience entirely of penetrative sex, if I'm reading the the email correctly. They're from a religious background. They didn't start spending time romantically and intimately with the opposite sex until their mid-20s and beyond. It's very likely that they were extremely nervous, perhaps uncomfortable. Maybe there wasn't enough stimulation and foreplay for them to feel entirely confident and relaxed. I would find it very surprising if there wasn't some tension and some clenching in this person's down belows. And although um, my friend who's a midwife, Deborah Niger, did um, mention that she thought this kind of clenching would mean that penetration full stop would be quite painful and and difficult for for somebody to put the penis in rather than giving the impression of a shorter vagina or lower cervix. I can still see how that general muscular tightness and tension could give the impression that it was difficult to get inside of somebody and that felt like there was a blockage uh, and therefore that might be why uh, our, our listener has drawn this conclusion. But then his point remains, I suppose, which is whatever's wrong if something's wrong I mean, it all sounds perfectly normal if that's the correct diagnosis but whatever's going awry does involve you know exploring your own body exploring your body with a partner having sensitivity maybe going to see a gp spending time on the internet reading resources and his point is how can she do that if she's in uh, I, I assume you know he's using muslim as a synonym for conservative really here you know she's in a conservative family household that's difficult, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, when you say maybe go and see a GP, I would say definitely go and see a GP uh, or a sexual health specialist. But that's so the thing, she- is that he's sort of saying, I'm all she's got. I mean, that's kind of part of the problem here, isn't it? Thankfully, he isn't all that she's got. There are loads of resources out there specifically aimed at helping people from all sorts of different Muslim backgrounds. When I'm talking about being Muslim, I'm, I'm really conscious that people don't think that I'm generalising too much. Um, sure, and he hasn't been specific. I mean, we don't know where in the world she's from. You know, she, she could be uh, British-born or she could be from the Philippines or she could be Pakistani. We don't know, do we? Absolutely. But really, it, whatever background she has, we know that in a lot of cases, the intersection between religion and sexuality can throw up all sorts of really complicated feelings uh, about one's sexuality, about one's ideas of purity, about what's okay and what's not okay in terms of uh, going out and meeting people from different backgrounds, which which she's doing. 
We've touched on this before um, because I referred to my friend Sadia Asmat and her book Sex Bomb, uh, which is her personal tale of growing up in a Muslim household and trying to navigate being a person with sexual feelings who's also been told that sex is bad for her as a woman, uh, but she's also got to be very sexual for her potential future husband. It gets really confusing really quickly, which is why it's a, a great idea to access sex education from people who who ex- explicitly understand this kind of uh, Muslim context, really. Uh, there's a brilliant woman called Angelica Lindsay Ali, a.k.a. The Villagianti. There's a great website called Amalia, who I actually used to um, share office space with. They do a podcast called Lights On, specifically about sex. Other people include the author Habiba Kande, uh, Shakira Abdullah, who is the founder of the Halal Sex Talks, Amira Zaki, Deeper Feminine. There's loads of people out there who are providing sex education, sexual resources, coaching, workshops, information specifically for people who have been brought up in a Muslim background and are now trying to work out how that affects them sexually. What I would love to suggest here though is that it's not just this woman who accesses these resources and looks these people up. I'd really like to gently draw our listeners attention to some aspects of the mail that he sent in that maybe might suggest a slight degree of insensitivity uh, or maybe disrespect. Some might even go so far as to use the, the term ignorance. We've got references here to her weird approach to sex. I don't personally think it's weird for somebody who has spent their whole life hearing messages that are religious to be perhaps a little bit confronted by the idea of open relationships. I think a lot of people would find that uh, a lot to wrap their head around, right? Yeah. Um, Although I suppose what he's saying is, isn't it weird that either she feels or I feel that her best chance at sex education is with someone like me? I mean, that's what he means, isn't it? He feels she can't explore her sexuality within a normal relationship because of the other pressures. You know, you've got to find the right man to marry or whatever it is. Absolutely. I think he's also trying to wrap his head around the fact that this woman, the way that he perceives it, is frightened of being seen by her parents as impure and perhaps has some sexual hang-ups. But she's still calling him up asking for sex because, um, as he interprets it, she wants to practice. So there are conflicting forces there. Uh, I don't know how helpful it is to call those weird, though, uh, and and to refer to that as being weirded out, when actually, to me, that that makes quite a lot of sense within the context of uh, having had a relig- religious upbringing. Um, there are other aspects of this email, things like saying, oh, uh, she's stopping herself from becoming sex positive. Like, she, th- th- I mean, that could be, a, it's a little bit blamey and shamey, that. Um, that the shock that she didn't seize opportunities to court suitors until she was 26. Depending on your background and and the and your religious beliefs, those might not have been opportunities yes. as you interpreted them until you were ready. Um, I just think this person might benefit from opening their mind a little bit to trying to understand their partner's point of view. And I think they'd both benefit from a little bit of reflection on that. 
Well, we never stop learning here in the foxhole. If you have a question of sex you would like Alex to answer in a future edition of the show, here's what to do with it. Go to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, send me your questions, send me your queries, and hell, invent a new sexual term or a new word full stop and share it with me. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Skuldin Tape in Galway. I haven't had the time to uh, Google to see if Skuldin Tape means anything rude in Gaelic. Uh, who's tweeted us at The Modern Man to say she is currently working her way through all the episodes she missed while she was off having a baby. Um, that's funny. Usually people write to us and say we were keeping them company at night whilst they were feeding the baby. But anyway, maybe she prefers the white noise. Uh, anyway, it's good you're back amongst man fans now, Scalding Tape. Currently enjoying the sour grapes on display in our Jack Bath episode, she says. <laughs> Your words, not mine. Uh, Scalding Tape, I now pronounce you ambassador for Galway. Congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to be a ambassador, now is a great time to reach out. I've just got through most of the requests that we had on file and I don't want to do the really old ones just in case people have died. So do buy us a beer, drop us a line. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on April the 10th. You got me down bad over my head We've been here once before but I'm seeing it again That it's too late, it's never too late You're calling on weekends and I'm fighting with your friends Cause I'm So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.